Well, good morning, church. Good morning. Uh, my name is Dustin, and I get the privilege of serving uh, as a pastor here, and so welcome. We are glad, very glad you are here this morning. Um, if you have your Bibles, we love those here. We will be in those. We finished Ecclesiastes last week, which was a book of the Bible, so now uh, y'all don't know where to turn. So we're going to be in Romans chapter 3 this morning, um, which will be towards the back of it. Um, and so we'll be in Romans chapter 3, and then next week will be a good resurrection message because it'll be Easter, and then uh, we're going to start through the book of Ephesians. And so uh, if you happen to be new or if you're around a lot, um, I'll remind you guys, as Jamie said, uh, our goal as a church is to connect people to a growing relationship with Jesus. And so uh, we don't really have a secret as to why we do what we do, but uh, that's the driving force behind everything that uh, we do. And so uh, during this time on Sunday mornings, uh, what we do is we preach from the Bible. Uh, we are uh, big on that. Um, if you've been around, you know that we're not uh, usually going to do a uh, fancy sermon series on uh, something at the movies or uh, the topic of the day, uh, but rather we believe that the Bible is sufficient for uh, all generations, okay? And so we want to begin with the Bible and then pull out from it with that being our foundation, okay? And so um, that this morning will be no different as we get into um, Romans. So if you have your Bibles, we're only going to cover five verses this morning. Um, they're really good verses, maybe uh, some of the most uh, in-depth verses are carrying the most weight uh, verses in the Bible. It's one of my favorite passages, and I think with it being Palm Sunday, as Liam mentioned, if you're not familiar with that, uh, this is the beginning of the Holy Week. Uh, this is when uh, Jesus enters Jerusalem and um, the end's about to come, okay? And so we know that the end was coming for Jesus, that people would reject him, they'd choose Barabbas over uh, the Savior of the world, uh, but we know that in the end, uh, that wasn't out of God's control, yeah? Um, that, uh, that was in God's plan and that Jesus would die and be crucified and then he would resurrect and um, that would be the Savior of the world. So what we're going to do this morning is we're going to take that idea and kind of talk about what does the cross, okay, because that's what we're looking at, what does the cross teach us about God? Okay, how do, we, how do we tie those together? What does Jesus going to the cross teach us about our creator? What does it teach us about the one who created us, the one who gave us the Bible? What does it teach us to God? We don't want to, rather than maybe uh, go and dissecting the story of Jesus, which is good, I would um, advise you to do that this week. Maybe listen to a sermon or a podcast or something of what the week looked like. Uh, you can read the end of the book of Mark. Um, and it will give you a, a very short way to understand it. But this morning, we're kind of going to look more uh, big picture as to what God was doing. And so uh, I will say this morning, uh, I normally preach with my iPad, um, and I transcript my sermons, meaning I write them out like a five to six page single space paper. So for you college students, it'll be about 12 pages every week. I had all my notes, and this morning I couldn't find my iPad. So here we go. I got four sticky notes, okay? That's what we got. I don't know if that's good or bad, okay? Um, it may mean it'll be five minutes. I doubt, highly doubt that's the case. Uh, yeah, y'all too. But um, it'll be good. Um, I'm excited about it. So I'll read the first five verses. The text will be in, and then we'll um, unpack them as they're, they're full. 
So if you're not super familiar, we're in the book of Romans, which a guy named Paul wrote. And uh, if you know, the Old Testament uh, is before Jesus, and then Jesus comes on the scene. And the first four books of the Bible are people giving biographies of Jesus. They're just following around, writing things. Well, what happens then is this guy named Saul, who was a, a Jew, who uh, gets saved. He has this moment in Acts chapter 9 where scales fall off his eyes, and he has an interaction with Jesus, and he goes on to be an incredible missionary, okay? Um, his name was Saul, and then becomes Paul. Um, but he writes the book of Romans, and uh, Paul was a smart guy, okay? Uh, when Paul writes the book of Romans, actually this entire book, I, I hope one day that we can study through it, it'll probably take a couple years because it's full, but this book itself is actually still used in many law schools across the nation, okay? Uh, how do we argue? How do we get to a point? How do we ask probing questions that you should be asking yourself? Well, that's how Paul writes. And so uh, we're fast forwarding into the middle of it, so we're, we're, we're missing some big stuff. But in these first few, these few verses, Paul narrows in his big argument as to what was the point of the cross, okay? Why did the cross have to happen? What was God doing in it? And what's the big deal about it? And so he begins to unpack that in these five verses. And so we'll try our best to do that. And we'll kind of cover the big story of redemption, the story of what God did for us through Christ. This morning. So, starting in verse 21, here we go. It's Paul writes, But now the righteousness of God, okay, let me pause there. I know the word righteousness can kind of like you're already in Bible land, okay? Follow me here. All he's saying is that God is righteous, okay? Our God, our Creator, cannot act outside of being perfect. He is righteous, He does not sin, He doesn't have impure motives. We don't have to wonder if he wants what's best for us. He is righteous all the time. He's not right-ish, like kind of good, kind of right. Righteous meaning he's good all the time, okay? Um, he's perfect. And so he's saying that the righteousness of God, God's perfectness, has been manifested, has been shown to us. That's what manifest means. It means it's been an overflow. He's, he's shown us his righteousness, his goodness, apart from the law. Okay, he's writing to Jews. Remember, if you know the Old Testament, I don't have time to preach a sermon on what the law was for, but in the Old Testament, they had thousands of laws they had to follow. And what that law did is it pointed at God's holiness. It said, God is perfect. For you to be like God, you have to do everything perfect, and here's a set of laws. And that set of laws was meant to do what? Show us that we are not perfect, that we could not keep all the laws perfect, and it was to point to the one that would keep all the laws perfect, which was... Jesus, okay? And so he's saying that God's goodness was manifested now apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God was manifest to us, he says in verse 22, through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. And then we have that good verse we all know, for there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's the bad news. And then he gets to the good news quick. He doesn't always do this, but that's why I like this passage. And are justified by his grace as a gift. Let me pause there again, okay? If you leave here and don't understand anything else, the cross of Christ displays God's grace. Listen, there is nothing 
no person could do to, to move God's hand or force him to show us grace. Listen, some of our sins come out in public, some don't. Some of us leave them behind closed doors, some of us are more transparent with them. But the reality is, is what 23 says, is that we've all fallen short. So if we need a level playing field, if we need to be on a, a level place here to start this morning, it's like, okay, we're all sinful, yeah? We, we all have fallen short of the glory of God. None of us are perfect. And it's by grace that he gave us Christ through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Verse 25 is where it gets good. Whom God put forward as a propitiation... That means one that would satisfy God, okay? Satisfy God's wrath by his blood to be received by faith. That was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, this is the only confusing part, he passed over former sins. What does he mean there? Let me pause there and then we'll get into applying this a little better. When he passed over former sins, he's talking about the Jews, you guys. You see, in the Old Testament... Jews were not saved by the law, okay? They weren't saved by keeping the law. They were saved by looking forward to what Christ would do for them. And you and I are saved by looking back at what Christ has already done for us. It all culminates and climaxes in what Christ did, okay? So he's saying God's goodness caused him to look over their sin. So they were saved, the Old Testament people, the people that lived on earth before Jesus, that had faith in Christ, they were saved by the promise to come, Jesus still paid for their sins. He just paid for it after their life. And Jesus still paid for our sins, but we look back at the payment he's already made. Y'all see that? If you live before Christ, you look forward. If we live after Christ like you and I, we look back at it. It all culminates in the cross, making the cross a big deal. Verse 26. It was to show his righteousness at the present time. Listen to this. So that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. I'll get to this in a minute. But the one who is wronged is God. But God on the cross, Jesus on the cross, was both the victim of bad things and he was the hero in this story. He was both. He was the one who took what he didn't deserve. He was the victim. That's what we would say a victim is. Somebody who gets something they don't deserve. But then in the resurrection, he becomes the hero of the story. So he's both the victim and the hero. He's both the just and the justifier in the redemption story that happens through the cross. And so we'll look this morning at that event of the cross and unpack what that teaches us about God. So let's pray and we'll unpack it more, okay? Father, we love you. God, I'm thankful for your word. I'm thankful uh, that you've given it to us. I'm thankful we don't have to wonder about salvation. We don't have to wonder, God, about what people think or, God, look to a, a man on earth now to hear from God for us. But, God, you already spoke to us in your word. And so, Lord, I pray that we would study it well, we would apply it well. And, God, it would be the foundation of uh, not only our church and what we do as a body of believers, but, God, help it be the foundation of our personal lives. God, help it be what we read and devote ourselves to God, so that uh, we can be sharpened and be made more like you. So, God, I pray that this morning your word would do that. We love you and we pray these things in Christ's name. Everybody says amen. amen. So I mentioned this a couple weeks ago, okay, of uh, people watching the Sandlot, yeah? Can we redo that? Anybody like the Sandlot? I hope so. That's bad. 
How many of y'all had have to like the Sandlot, okay? I'm still talking about the Sandlot because Dax is in, in a Sandlot mood, okay? But, but the reason I like the Sandlot is for many reasons, okay? Because it, it's just good. But the reason I really like it is because it really gets to the idea of a climax, okay? Most of the time in a movie or in a story, okay? And I'm going to point this to the cross. It's in a pointless illustration. It's kind of funny, but um, it, it's good, Okay? But the reason that movies are, are, happen like this is because usually the good and the bad mesh together, yeah, which is much like what happens at the cross. You see, some people look at the cross, the idea of Jesus dying for us, and we see only grace, which is good, and it is a gracious act by God, but it's also where God's wrath was satisfied, okay? Because in the garden, Adam and Eve sinned. And there had to be an atonement. There had to be something that satisfied God's wrath on that. And so what we see is wrath and mercy, wrath and grace meshed together perfectly in the cross. It's what we see in the movie when uh, Benny the Jet gets his PF flyers out, right? You have the monster dog and you have this. And um, I think my favorite part about it now is we'll be riding around and I'm not joking. This happens and it is like, it's the, it's the, it's the most fun but great thing is Dax will look at me if I, if I tell him, you know, that this happened in the car. He was eating an apple, and he wants to throw it out all the time. And I'm like, well, you got to throw it out where it'll land on grass. You can't be in a red light in the middle of Athens and just chunk your apple out. It's just, y'all know what I mean. It's just kind of weird. So um, I say, no, Dax, we got to wait till we get on the highway. And he'll say, you're killing me, Smalls. <laughs> and I think it's hilarious, okay? I mean, if there's something that's funny, it's funny to me, okay? And um. There, there is a part, side note, in that movie that I didn't realize as a kid that was kind of weird, but the Wendy Peppercorn part, yeah. He knows now when, when that part comes up, you know, uh, Smalls is narrating the movie himself, and he's like, well, there's one thing that got us into big trouble that summer. And he's talking about when they went and, you know, he's fake dead and all that. Well, I didn't realize this, but it's kind of weird. Like, they do this whole, like, looking at her and she's putting some lotion on. It's just not a good picture. I'm like, Daddy thinks that part is weird, Dak. So we're going to skip that. So we were watching it for the third time and he's like, Daddy, this is the part you think is weird. I'm like, yeah, fast forward, you know. And so y'all are like, yeah, Dustin's raising the preacher kids that are going to be naive in the world and he's going to be 20. And listen, I, I, I think that the later we can have that conversation, the better, okay? I'm all for that. But I'm fully aware that if you go to your local Walmart, he's likely to see less than what he sees in Wendy Peppercorn, okay? Yeah? Y'all know what I mean? Um, or wherever else you go around Athens, okay? There's, it's all out there, okay? But I say all that because at the end of the movie, it is. You have this big bad thing, but then you have kind of the hero of the movie, Benny the Jet, who's going to take on the bad. And, and you really see this good and bad mesh together, okay? And I share that because that's almost exactly what we see in the cross, as I explained earlier. You have this, this good thing, this idea that we should see is great, you guys, and it is a beautiful thing. But it's like Leah mentioned earlier, we don't get to the resurrection without people rejecting Jesus as the Son of God first, okay? It's this idea that all of the sins of the world, which are not this far off thing that people do, but something that you and I take part in every day of saying, God should not be worshiped as the almighty he is. He doesn't deserve all the glory in my life and all the glory in the world, but rather we want to give glory to far less things. And those things, when we do that, when we live like that, they are <laughs> sins. Okay. We're going to see this in a second. But what we know is, is that God had to pour out his wrath on something. And he couldn't pour out his wrath on you and I because we weren't perfect things to pour wrath out on, but rather he poured his wrath out 
on God, and he be- Jesus became the propitiation. He became the one that satisfied it. So we see grace and mercy come together in the cross, okay? That's the grand story that happens at the cross. And so what I want to do now is I have three things from this passage, okay? We'll get to them relatively quick. Three things that we learn about God from the cross, or three things that we learn about God from this passage, and we'll unpack them, okay? Number one, the first one, if you're writing this down, is the character of God. We learn the character of God from the cross. You see, the first thing that we learn from this is that God is perfect. You see, how how do we get that from this text, Dustin? I want to read verse 21 again to show you where we get that God is perfect. He's holy. He's different. He does not sin. It says, but the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and prophets bear witness to it. You see, I mentioned this earlier, but all the laws that God had given in the Old Testament was to point to God's perfectness. It's to to show people like you and I how perfect God is, to give them a long, 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 long list of things to say, this is how perfect I am. If you want to live up to the standard that I am, do all of this. And they knew that they couldn't. They knew that they were not perfect. And Habakkuk 1.13 also says that God is so perfect that he can't even look at sin, okay? He has to turn away from it. He's perfect. He, he's holy. He's different. He's apart from it. There's a, a sermon, I, a sermon, an illustration I often used to, to talk about this, to try to get this point across, but um, say that somebody comes to your house, okay, and you had just gone Christmas shopping. You have all your stuff, lots of, uh, a lot of money worth of things in your house, and they come in your home and they steal everything. They, they take it all, okay? We naturally, in that moment, think that that person is deserving, or that person is deserving of some type of punishment. Is that fair? Yeah, that if you do something wrong, there's morality in us that says that person should be punished for doing wrong. And so what we do is, and what we see God as being perfect, is we say, okay, if that person has done wrong, then they need to go to court. And then our court system has this thing called judges. And we go before a judge, and so you're in this scenario, you go and you finally figure out who stole all your stuff, and uh, you're the plaintiff, and you go over there, they're the defendant, and they're going to defend themselves, and the judge comes out and says, you know what, they did something really bad, but they seem like they're sorry for it. We're not going to make them pay it back. We're not going to make them go to jail. You're going to be off scotch-free. How many of y'all would say that's a good judge and you would be happy with that? Nobody, right? Well, that's the same way our sin is before a holy God, right? If we've said, then we'll get this in a minute, that all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, that's us before God. Listen, and God would not be good if he said, you know what? I'm just going to sweep your sin under the rug. We're going to act like it never happened. There's not going to be any punishment or any propitiation for it. We're just going to act like it never happened, and you can come into a relationship with me. You guys, I know that's not the most appealing thing to hear, but that's why Jesus had to go to the cross, because God would not be worth worshiping if God was not good and God did not uphold his holiness, okay? There had to be something punished for the sins of the world, for the sins of you and I. And so what ended up being punished was Christ, and that's how we get to where we were. The second thing we learn about the character of God is that God is sovereign. 
You say, well, Dustin, how do we learn that? There's one thing that I would say that I was probably most confused about until I really started studying the scriptures, and that's that I thought Jesus was a rescue plan. Anybody? Like, when you're little, you know, people got created, Adam and Eve, and they just got worse and worse and worse, and God was scratching his head. He didn't know what to do. So what did he do? Jesus, come on, you're in, bud. Tom, you're in the game. Time to go. I don't know what else to do with these people. Anybody? Yeah? That's how I thought. But if God is reactive, God cannot be sovereign. Yeah? If God has foreknowledge, if he knows the future, then he cannot be sovereign. We, listen, we, we can't separate the cross from the character of God, okay? It is important that we understand what God was thinking. So, Dustin, how do we know God is sovereign? Well, if you were here a couple weeks ago when we went through Genesis, the prophecy, the first one we see of the cross of Jesus is in Genesis when they sin and he says between your offspring and his, one will come and it will crush Satan's head. Yeah, that was a prophecy of Jesus. But then it says that the prophets bear witness to it. If you read Isaiah, especially Isaiah 53, it says that one will come that will be beaten and mocked for us. And the language that Isaiah uses a thousand years before Jesus comes is about a singular person that's a male. It's not about a country. It's not about um, an idea. It's about a person that would come that would bear the sins of the world. God was sovereign. Jesus wasn't a rescue plan. It was his plan of redemption from the beginning. And what that forces us to, and what I would say then is, we can't divorce God's sovereignty. We can't not have God's sovereignty and want security. Think about this with me. There's this idea flowing around, and I, it's just it's dangerous, honestly, but we, we want to separate God from our circumstances in life. That God, did God, is, was God in control when that happened? And there are some things that are hard to, to do with that, that are hard to put in that, but we can't divorce God's sovereignty. Listen, the time we think God is not in control in our life, we have to realize he is in control. You want me to give you the best example of that? The cross. Do you think for a second that Jesus' disciples, when he was getting ready to go on the cross, that maybe God was not in control? Who's thankful this morning God was in control? Listen. Romans 8 teaches us that there are things that happen, and I'm not here to tell you that we always learn on this side of earth. There are many things we have that happen on this side of earth that are hard, and there's suffering we'll go through. Philippians 1.28 says that um, on this earth, we're going to become like Christ in knowing his suffering. Death itself, who in here intends on dying? Yeah, but we, we, we don't think about it. We numb ourselves from it. But you guys, this is what the cross has power over. It's God's sovereignty that gives us security. Think about it. How do we go to funerals? Listen, how, how do we wake up tomorrow? How do, we, how do we get to the end and know that God's not going to have separated himself from the day of judgment and say, well, I'm not really in control. I didn't have foreknowledge. I wasn't sure about that moment. And, and then we don't know if our salvation is secure. It's God's sovereignty that gives us security. We can't divorce it in the hard times just because it's hard. 
Listen, I know that's a, a lot deeper message to dive into, but we, know, but we must talk about this because he's talking about the prophets bear witness to Christ. God is sovereign. God has foreknowledge. He knows. And that's what gives us security. I want to read John 10, 27 through 29. They'll put it on the screen for you. I want to, I'll, I'll just read it off of it. But this is where we see God's sovereignty play out in our salvation. Do we have it or not? If not, I'll read it. Is it up there? No? Yes. Okay. Here we go. I got it. Sorry. <laughs> um, I want you to think about the sovereignty of God in your personal life and how even the cross plays into this when I, when I read this. This is Jesus. He says, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. Listen, without God's sovereignty, we would perish. If there was a forgetful God who, who we couldn't be sure of in the future, then we, we, we would need to wonder. But he says, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. God's sovereignty is the bedrock of our security as believers, right? How do we know our salvation is sure? How do we know that? Not because you and I are going to beat our chest and say, I'm going to work myself to heaven. That's the opposite of the gospel, right? That we couldn't work our way there. But our assurity, our security comes from Christ and what he accomplished for us on the cross. That's why it's such a big deal. That's why we see God's sovereignty in the cross. When we think we don't see it, we do. And the last thing I'll say is, is it's kind of why that, that hymn makes so much sense for us. I'm trying to find my notes, but what do we sing? Because he lives, I can face tomorrow. Because he lives, all fear is gone, and I know, and then it draws out, who holds my future, life is worth the living just because he lives, yeah? Listen, we can't grab God's sovereignty and then want to divorce it. The cross shows us that sometimes it's hard, but it's a beautiful thing when we see the full thing play out. And so good application for us. I don't know where you are this morning. Maybe you're on a high. Maybe you're in a valley. I'm not sure. But know that God is sovereign. Know that your security is firm in him. All right. The second thing this teaches us, this passage, is that God is holy and we are not. I want to read verse 23, and I won't spend too much time on this because we want to get to the good stuff of Jesus. Yeah? Anybody? Yeah? Get to the good stuff? Yeah? Okay. But God's holy and we are not. I want to read verse 23. It says, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. I want to highlight two things in that verse, okay? The first one being the word all. There's no place in the body of Christ for us to want to beat our chest or think that one is higher than the other. I don't know where it comes from, but there's this idea, especially in our culture, and I think it, it eases its way into the church that there's like this hierarchy of who's good and who's bad. Listen, our debts are like five trillion, and our works are like maybe one. 
It's like owing somebody $5 trillion and walking up to them and saying, well, here's a $10 bill. I hope this satisfies. No. And some of you may have $11. You're better. Yeah. No. You see what I'm saying? It's like our works in light of God's holiness don't add up. They don't. And it's not just for some. It's for all. It's for everybody. There's a level playing field at the cross. Completely level. The second thing it shows us is that it's about glory. This is where it gets hard. You see, this verse doesn't say, and some of you cussed one time. Some of you drank too many natural lights sometimes. Some of you were too worried about yourself. Some of you were idolized sports. Some of you idolized money. Some of you idolized being smart. Some of you idolized golf. You see what I'm saying? That's not what it, how it says we fell short. We want to put a quick action on it. But it says, how did we fall short? We fell short of the glory of God. So what, what's this thing about? It's about we were created to worship and glorify God. So the only way we can live a perfect life is if we worship and glorify God perfectly. Nobody can do that. Let me give you a scenario of two people. I don't know where this came from, but we talk about this a little bit in heart and soul. But there, there's two people, okay? The, the justification line of being saved is on this side of, or, or right here at the table, and what we do is, if lost people are over here on this side and saved people are over here, is we like to see, like, judge how lost somebody is, okay, or how bad somebody is. And so you have two different people's life, okay? The, the first one you have is uh, this person has been to rehab four times, been to jail six times. You, anything you can think of bad or something that you wouldn't do because you're better than that person, whatever that person would do to make you feel like that, that person's bad and they're, they're way over there. But then you have this other person, and they got a wife and a pretty kid, and they're, they're even close to making six figures, they're a pretty good business person, pretty good old athlete, you know, they kind of got it together, a lot of friends on the Facebook, y'all know what I mean, I'm trying to put together this image in your head, but this person's an atheist, yeah. Y'all see what I'm saying here? The reality for both of those people to come to Christ has absolutely nothing to do with them cleaning themselves up to get there. If we had to do that, then the cross is pointless. Y'all follow me on this? It's because it's a glory issue. It's a glory issue, meaning that we are supposed to worship God perfectly. So if that person that has it all together has it all together so that they can get glory and they brag about it, they're probably actually stealing more glory from God than the person who's broken and comes and says, I'm broken, Lord, save me. I'll be honest. Sometimes those people are a lot easier to have conversations about the Lord with than people that you have to convince are broken. Yeah? You see, what this shows us is that if we see our sin as shallow we'll probably see the cross as equally shallow. But if we see our debt is big, then we're going to see the cross as big. The, the measure of our worship of God probably doesn't come from how often we raise our hands or how much we clap or how crazy we act in worship. Probably not. I don't think that God gets more or less glory based on how many hands are up in here. I think God gets glory when we consciously think and understand about who he is, how unholy we are, how sinful we are, and what God accomplished for us by going to the cross for us.
And when we're in that state of mind, that's when we can rightfully worship God, okay? It's not when we say, well, I did this this week, I'm good. No, we're not. Because he teaches us later in Romans that even after you get saved, your, your, your salvation is secure. Listen, Philippians 1.6 says that he who began a good work in us will bring it to completion. You can be sure in your salvation. But brothers and sisters, should we not, not ever boast in our works, right? We boast in the Lord Jesus and what he did for us on the cross. And it's because we do that when we're highly aware of our sin. The last one, number three is that God is gracious. This is where it gets good. Starting in verse 24, it says, we are justified by His grace as a what? Gift. A gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as propitiation by His blood to receive by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. I want to go back to the illustration of the courtroom again and show you that God had to be just. Listen, if God is immoral or God doesn't pay the price of the sins that have been committed and he sweeps them under the rug. He's not a good judge and therefore he's not worthy of being worshiped. God has to be just. So for God to be just, instead of pouring out his wrath on you and I, Christ satisfied his wrath for us. And so we say it should have been us on the cross, but rather it was Jesus. That's what most theologians create and call, they're not create, but they call the great exchange, right? Jesus exchanged places with us. We now get Christ's righteousness applied to our life. Do we get Christ's righteousness and, and get to be seen as perfect because we're perfect? No. We get that exchange because of what Jesus did for us. And Christ takes on our identity of being sinful and takes the punishment that we deserve. And that's what makes Jesus great. I want to say this. And I think this is good application. We, you know, we, one of the things we say as a church is that we're gospel-centered and that the gospel applies to all parts of life. But, you know, the power of forgiveness lies in the one who's been wronged. Yeah? You talk about a hard place to be. Think about the person who has wronged you most. We want to get mad. And sometimes, probably rightfully so, they wronged us. But should we forgive them? Yes. And you have the power of forgiveness lies in the one who's been wronged. So we apply that to our personal life, and it gets hard. I understand that. But the flip side of this is what Christ did for us. And I know y'all are tired of the Christ analogies, but it's Palm Sunday. Okay. <laughs> However bad that person wronged you does not compare to how we've wronged Christ. If you want to know, go read the book of Hosea. And it's about, sorry, no, yeah. Amos or Hosea, I can't remember. Okay, sorry. But it's about this person who 
This unfaithful person keeps on being unfaithful. And that person keeps on being faithful. And guess what that's a picture of? Not just God and Israel and how Israel would be unfaithful and God would be faithful and then they'd be punished and then they'd come back to him and unfaithful and faithful and good king and bad king. Things would go good, Israel would run off and then God would punish them rightfully and then they'd come back. Faithful, unfaithful. Does that resonate with anybody in here? Yeah. And so what we see here in seeing that God is gracious is that God is just and justifies us and that the forgiveness lies in his hands and he was willing to forgive us. And one of the greatest things we can do as application of that is be willing to forgive. And I, I don't say that lightly because there's probably somebody, I have people in my life that are hard to forgive, but I think what it does is, is it forces us to get deep. And the only well that you can draw deep enough to forgive that person for is by looking to Christ, the one who forgave you. Yes? And so what we see is that this application overflows and overflows in our life. The last thing I'll say, and I told you I had two things on God being gracious, is that he over and over again in this says that this righteousness, in verse 25, if we'll put that up there, whom God put forward as propitiation by his blood to be received by what? Faith. The Bible goes on to say faith is a gift. It's not a work. So we know that this salvation is not work-based. But I think that's probably one of the most confused things we have when we think about the gospel and applying it to our life is what is faith? And I think there's kind of two, two sides of faith. If you've been through heart and soul, this will be not new to you, but let me quickly explain it, okay? If there's a chair beside me, many Americans have the type of faith that say, yes, I believe that chair can hold me up. I have faith. This would be very equivalent to saying, I believe in God. Are you a Christian, somebody said, at work tomorrow? And you would say, yes, I believe in God, absolutely. Sorry, I know my sarcastic voice is bad. Okay, I got to quit. <laughs> but we see the chair there, and we give it lip service. But the reality comes in when we say, what would prove to you guys that I have faith that that chair could hold me up? Walk over there and What? Sit in it. And I could go on and on and make the illustration better and last it 10 minutes and be on YouTube, okay? That ain't my goal. My goal is for you to apply it to your life and to ask yourself, what does it look like to actually place faith in Christ? And the one thing I could not think about when I was thinking about this application on Friday morning is that there's nobody I've personally encountered and nobody in Scripture that has placed faith in Christ and stayed the same. There becomes something different. We talked about this a little bit last week about being on the fence, and I don't want to give you an emotional push. But I think what it does is, is it causes us to look in the mirror and say, okay, we teach this in heart and soul. If you were to go share the gospel tomorrow with your coworker who's not saved, and they walk up to you and say, I want to be saved. What are y'all going to do? I hope I have Dustin's number. <laughs> nah, you can lead them to Christ. <laughs> you can. You got to know the gospel. Yeah, because it's the power of salvation is what Romans 1, 16 says. 
But then Romans 1.17 says the righteous shall live by faith. So we know that we become righteous. We get clean. We get saved by only faith in Christ. So how does somebody get saved? Number one, they have to know God. They have to understand that God is holy. Step two, they have to understand their sin. So it creates this huge chasm, right? That God's holy, we're not. How do we get to a holy God? We can't. So God graciously sent his son Jesus to be the bridge to be the reconciliation back to himself that we can freely walk across. But there's only one thing we have to do. There's a response left, and that's place faith. Listen, knowing God or knowing of the gospel is not enough. We only receive that righteousness. That righteousness covers us by faith in Christ. And the last reminder for believers in here, if you have placed faith in Christ, remind yourself often that there's no condemnation, that you don't need to feel guilty. You don't need to want to run away from God when your sin's exposed or when you do something bad. Romans 8.1 teaches that Jesus' blood was enough. The cross was enough. When we say, God, I, I can't come to you, I can't run back to you when I screw up, we're basically saying Jesus didn't shed enough blood. We're saying it has to do with my own works. Do y'all follow me on this? We're saying it has to do with me. God, I can come to you when I get myself together enough. And God's saying that's the point of the gospel. You can't, right? You can't get yourself together enough. That's why Jesus had to come down to earth and die for you. And so we say, therefore, there's no condemnation. Now, just come back. Jesus' blood is there. His grace is there. And that's the beauty of the cross for believers as we come back over and over and over. And so if you're in here, and this is not just a bad push, but if you're in here and you haven't placed faith in Christ, then we want you to do that now. There's not a better time to think about it. But the only way you can do that is by placing faith in Christ and not the faith that's lip service, but faith that trusts Christ with your life. The best way to do that, we teach this in heart and soul. I'm giving you a lot of tips in the heart and soul. If you haven't been, here's a nudge. How do, we, how, do we, how do we do this? Probably the best way is not to ask yourself what you quit doing when you came to Christ, but to ask yourself what you started. Our culture teaches you to clean up. Listen, before I truly got saved, I cleaned myself up like probably 4,000 times. Anybody? Yeah? God, I'll quit. God, if you let me go three for three today, I'll quit. I promise. Quit what? It's PG in here, okay? <laughs> but that's what we do over and over and over. And we don't have to do that. We can be sure because of what Jesus did for us on the cross. Amen? And so we come to him knowing that he's already accomplished it. That's why we sing. That's why one of our favorite songs as a church has become, Yet Not I, But Christ in Me. It's not us. That's why Paul said if we boast, we don't boast in ourselves, but we boast in the Lord. From salvation on, it's about Christ. I want to pray for us, and then we'll be done, and we're going to stand up and sing a song, and, um, and then we'll get on to having fun. But as we sing, just a couple things, okay? Maybe use this time as a reflection. One of my biggest fears is that 
I, we would assume that people are saved and they're not, that they've placed faith in Christ and they have it. And I don't want to do that in some manipulative way to try to get your heart beaten and then drop a bomb, okay? That's not the goal. But for you to consciously reflect on your life and say, have I truly placed faith in Christ and sat in the chair? And the second one is, if you're a believer in here, remind yourself that you've been made righteous through the blood of Christ and we have a reason to celebrate Jesus, amen? Our, 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 our life, our hope, is in eternity. It's not just in tomorrow. But rather, we know the future and it's sure because of what Christ did. And we can especially highlight that this week as we begin Holy Week and look into the resurrection next week and what Christ's resurrection did for us, church. Amen? Let's pray and we'll get going. Father, we love you. God, we're thankful for the cross, as we always say. God, we're thankful for your love and your mercy. And God, I pray that God, even as this morning was probably not a lot of epiphanies besides your sovereignty being sovereign over everything. But God, I pray that most of all our hearts are reminded of what we need to be reminded of often, which is what you bought for us on Calvary. God, when we read about in your word that people traded you for a thief, God, that people shouted they didn't want you. God, if it helps us worship you and see the cross for what it's worth, help remind us that we were once them. Before our salvation, before what you changed in our life, God, we were of those people. We were adulterous people. God, that wanted to worship everything but you. And so, Lord, help us during this time and God, help our worship not start here, as our discipleship book has said. Help our worship be our eternal vocation. God, help our worship be how we treat our wives when we leave. Help our worship be how we raise our kids. Help our worship be how we work, how we steward all that you've given us. And God, help us not lose hope in what you accomplished for us on the cross. God, we know that the best is yet to come, not for even tomorrow, so that we can say something cliche about healing and a blessing coming. But God, the best is yet to come because at Calvary, you bought eternity for us. And God, one day we get to be with you in glory. God, the best part of our salvation is that we get to meet our Savior face to face and see you for all your worth. So God, help us put our minds to that now as we worship you. We love you and we pray this in Christ's name. Everybody says...